You're listening to Brunch with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Tuesday morning. Let's turn to the very first part of today's program. In the next 15 minutes or so, you're going to hear about uh, Grenville Cross, uh, an excerpt from a program we did earlier uh, in the month called Lion Rockers. Now, Lion Rockers is a program that I host every Saturday morning at 8.30, where I get the chance to catch up with some one-on-one, uh, one-on-one time with some of the movers and shakers of our city. And uh, they talk a little bit more about what the Lion Rock spirit means to them and how they've used it to overcome challenges. And here's an excerpt with Grenville Cross, who starts by telling us what he thinks the Lion Rock spirit means to him. Perseverance, a determination to, to get on, to give of your best, uh, not to be derailed by obstacles. You know, when, you, when things seem very black at times, but you have to pick yourself up and carry on and hope for the best and hope that uh, things will work out uh, as you would like them to work out. So it's really prevailing by perseverance. Yeah. How have you used these qualities to apply them in your own areas of life? Well, I mean, like everybody else, I've had uh, setbacks. uh, I've tried to come to terms with them, not to regard it as the end of the world, to regard regard setbacks as, uh, you know, (laughs) setbacks rather than defeats, because you, you, you can come back. Uh, I remember one example in, in the mid-1990s. You may remember that Chris Patton, who was then the governor, was pursuing what was called a localization policy, which involved uh, uh, removing some very good expatriate people uh, from the civil service uh, and localizing the position. Localizing just for the sake of it, not, not, not on its merits, but simply for the sake of it. And within my own department, the, the then legal department, some excellent prosecutors were localized out, simply because, even though they were permanent Hong Kong residents, that they weren't local Chinese. So this was a very short-sighted policy. And some people actually still take the view that it was a deliberate policy by Chris Patton to destabilise the civil service so that after 1997 it wouldn't function as successfully as it had done before 1997. Now, I should say I don't subscribe to that view. Uh, I think he probably thought he really had to localise more, given that uh, there hadn't been much localisation before his arrival in 1992. But the way in which it was carried out was short-sighted uh, and dangerous, because, as I say, uh, it caused a lot of disruption uh, to, to the civil service, uh, which, uh, to an extent, undermined it. Uh, and I, that affected me, I remember, because uh, even though I was the Deputy Director of Public Prosecutions in 1994, uh, a vacancy then, then came up as the Director, so I applied, and I was told in terms that because I, was, uh, uh, because I wasn't a local, I was told I wasn't a local, that I, I, I couldn't have the position. So that was a huge blow, and uh, so I had to very seriously consider my position. Uh, and, uh, but after 1997, a few years later, things, of course, turned round, and uh, the incoming government... Uh, took a completely different view of things. They took the view that expatriates like me, uh, who were Hong Kong permanent residents, who were committed to Hong Kong, still had a vital role to play here, uh, and they wanted to take full advantage of our talents. Uh, And so even though the old British government uh, had refused to give me the position of Director of Public Prosecution, the incoming Chinese government was happy to do so because they thought I was the best person for the job. So by not giving up, by holding my ground, things were able to to turn round in my favour, which obviously was very heartening. Yeah, that sounds like a big setback because you were the deputy DPP. Absolutely. And to not have gotten that position. Well, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, as I say, that uh, to, to be, well, at least I kept my job. I mean, a lot of my colleagues were just localised out altogether, you and, see. And how did it feel after the handover to be then appointed? Well, obviously, it was a great elation. I mean, it sent out a very positive message, not only to the expectorate community in Hong Kong, but to the world, that people 
even though they'd be foreigners, if they live in Hong Kong and have lived here for, for ages, if they are committed to its well-being, if they want the city to do well, then there's a role for them to play. So that was a very important message to be sent out. And, of course, it also, in, in the area of public prosecutions, it reinforced Deng Xiaoping's point that it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white so long as it catches the mice, you see? A very pragmatic and sensible point of view, if I may say so. <laughs> Now, um, you held that role for 12 years, um, having retired as the DPP. Actually, I'm not even sure if I should use the word retired because um, what, I, what I mean is you, you had that role but because right now you're busier than ever um, and you have an active interest in all sorts of areas um, in the prosecutions field. You're the vice chairman of the Senate of the International Association of Prosecutors. You're teaching um, at different universities here in Hong Kong and, and in Beijing and, and Wuhan. You've written a book, Sentencing in Hong Kong, which is now, I believe, in its 10th edition. 10th edition. Yes, 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 that's right. Yes. What motivates you to sort of uh, keep doing different things? Well, I mean, when I, when I, when I left the Department of Justice in, in, 20, in 2010, uh, many people assumed I'd go into private uh, practice, as indeed many of my, my colleagues did. But I wanted to change of focus. I wanted to do other things which were still legally related, but not exclusively legally related. Uh, so I, I've always been interested in communicating and, edu and speaking to young people at universities and so on. So when these various professorships came my way, I was very glad to take them up. Uh, as you say, I work part-time for the International Association of Prosecutors. I've, I've actually just given up my position as Vice-Chairman of the Senate, but the position I now have is Chairman of the Standing Committee on Prosecutors in Difficulty, uh, which is very, very interesting. And what it means is that I chair the committee which advises the Association when prosecutors ask the Association for help. Uh, and uh, I, I sit on this committee, chair it with a prosecutor from South Africa and a prosecutor from the United States. Uh, and so we get numerous requests. We've had a request in just just uh, just the other day from a particular country where the, the, the prosecutors complain that their conditions of service aren't satisfactory uh, and that they're not being paid enough. So can the association intervene on their behalf? You mentioned earlier on the, uh, the violence in South America, uh, places like Ecuador, Mexico and so on. Prosecutors have been attacked recently uh, and we've, my committee is having to be having to advise on those sort of cases. Uh, so this is immensely challenging work and in some ways more important than the work I used to do as director of public prosecutions because this is trying to help prosecutors internationally, uh, which is, and of course, prosecutors are an essential part of the rule of law and unless they can function properly then criminal justice systems won't work so this has been immensely satisfying uh, I'm also the patron of Against Child Abuse which is the uh, a premier uh, non-governmental organisation which campaigns for better child protections so that takes up takes up some of my time and I'm very happy and proud to be able to, to, be able to help them with that so causes that uh, which uh, attract my interest I, you know they keep me fully occupied one way or another and as you say the, the new edition of my book Sentencing in Hong Kong uh, will be out next year that's incredible. Where do you find the time? And, and, and what are some of your hobbies when you're not doing sort of um, well, I can legally work, I stuff? Can, I can work very quickly. Uh, when, I was, when I was DPP, I was under great pressure all the time. And uh, you can't let the in-tray pile up, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise it's really asking for trouble. So you have to be able to make decisions quickly. You have to be able to research quickly. You have to be able to analyse problems quickly. Uh, and that's, that's stood me in very good stead throughout, throughout, uh, throughout my career. And what sorts of hobbies do you have outside of well, work? Well, uh, I've... <laughs> Since my school days, I've been a great collector. In the early days, it was fairly mundane things like stamps and coins and so on. Uh, but uh, now I've expanded into all sorts of other areas over the years. When I first came to Hong Kong, I used to collect Tung Chi porcelain after the Tung Chi Emperor, who was the emperor from, what, 1862 to 1875. And I chose that because at that time... 
Tungchi porcelain was relatively inexpensive. Anything before that would have been way beyond my uh, salary as a as a as a prosecutor, uh, and also some English English uh, silver. Uh, over now the years, they're worth a so, lot. Yeah, a lot of a lot of this stuff has, has gone up a lot in value over the years, and I I wouldn't be able to I wouldn't be able to purchase now the stuff I put I purchased in those days, and I developed into other areas. Uh, all, all types of areas. I collected Shanghai postcards. I collected uh, Vietnam postcards. I collected... Uh, uh, I heard you collected hat buttons. Well, that, I was going to come to that. Firecracker labels for Macau, all sorts of things. And also, I have a focus these days on, on the late Qing dynasty. So, as you say, one of the things I, I do collect uh, is Mandarin hat buttons. Uh, <laughs> you... it, it, describe it to our listeners. Well, right. <laughs> Let me tell you how this started. In, in 1991... I went on my first visit to Tianjin, up in the north of China. Uh, I was staying in Beijing and went across for the weekend. And uh, I was all by myself. And people, once you left the hotel, you're completely on your own. No one spoke any English. But there, there were lots of little markets which fascinated me. And I went into one little stall. And I saw this beautiful little uh, coral stone on a, on, a, on a metal base. And uh, obviously, I, I couldn't ask the owner what it was. <laughs> so he and I negotiated a price. I thought it was very nice. And I purchased it, brought it back to Hong Kong. Uh, took it to the antique dealer that I normally used to deal with in those days, asked him what it was, and he said it was a Mandarin hat button. Uh, and it turns out that in the days of the, the Qing dynasty, there were nine grades of Mandarin, and you could tell their rank from the hat button. So number one would be ruby, and the one that I purchased then would be uh, would, would be with the coral, which would be number two. And so you'd go on to sapphire, lapis lazuli, uh, silver, gold, and so on. Uh, so I built up the complete set of those. But it, it took me some time to find the, the number one, which was, which was the, the, ruby, the ruby, because that is very rare. And then about, I suppose, seven years ago, I was on a trip to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia, where not many people go, actually. So it's, a, it's an antique collector's paradise, because, because the dealers just don't go there. And so I was one of the first collectors to go there, I suppose. And uh, they have a few antique shops. And then on, the, on a shelf there, I, I happened to see uh, one of these, uh, one of these um, Mandarin hat buttons, grade one, which was a complete set together with the peacock feather, which was attached to it. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the shop owner had no idea what it was. <laughs> so, so, so you were able to so get I was it. able to get that and complete my set. So, uh, but, uh, so that, 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 uh, that, that's part of my collection. And these days I, I concentrate primarily on old photographs of uh, Hong Kong, uh, Macau and, uh, and mainland China. Oh, I love that. And Just I'm, to see I'm the, the vice, vice president of the... Hong Kong Collector Society, which is very active, meets once a month, and is having its 30th exhibition next year at, uh, at the Central Library. So there's a plug. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our listeners will be there. Will they be able to see some of your collection, though? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it's not just me. I mean, yeah. uh, my, my colleagues have, have fascinating things. So what do your colleagues collect? What sorts well, of things? all types of things. Uh, uh, my wife collects uh, hand fans, la ladies' hand fans. That's uh, and, really cool. You know, uh, old ones. Yes. Yeah. Well, some new ones as well, but uh, primarily old ones. Uh, stamps, obviously. Some people collect uh, silver. Some people collect uh, mainland uh, tax chops. All types of things. I suppose the most eccentric collector is the man who collects old Chinese bottles. Uh, he has a collection of over 5,000 old Chinese bottles and he keeps them all in his garden in, in Lama Island. <laughs> so they, they collect all types of things. Some people collect cars, some people, yeah, every, every, everything imaginable. Excellent. Now, the guests who come on the programme um, often choose a song for our listeners to, to have a listen. Um, to. Is there a song you can share with our listeners today that's of significance to you? Well, I actually like most types of music, but uh, to, to select one, uh, I'd probably go for 
Dreams by Fei Wong, which you may remember was the theme song of the uh, the film Chungking Express, which was directed by Wong Kar-wai in the in the uh, 1990s, and he got it from the the Cranberries, who were a very popular rock group uh, in in Ireland, uh, and he. Uh, produced a, a Chinese version, which was beautifully sung by Fei Wong, and I've always found it a very moving and a very evocative type of song. So that would be the one that I would choose. Well, let's have a listen. And meanwhile, Mr. Cross, I really, really enjoyed hearing your story. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.